You are listening to the Regents University London podcast. Every episode, we talk to an academic about a subject of interest to them. This week, we chat to Elena Christopher about her passion for archives and the politics surrounding the way they are curated. Hello there, you're listening to the Regents University London podcast. My name is Ash Babington. I'm here with Eleanor Christopher, who is the programme leader of MA Media and Digital Communications. How are you today? I'm good, thank you very much, and thanks for having me. No problem at all. So we're here today to chat about archives. Uh, Could we kick off uh, just by saying, how did you get interested in archives? What interests you about them? Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, so my trip, my story with archives is uh, actually quite long. I got interested in them when I was an uh, an undergraduate student, um, and I was on my year abroad Mm -hmm. uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, and um, I decided to take a module on, um, I believe it was something like rethinking the civil rights movement. And as part of the module, uh, we were encouraged to go to the Henry Hampton collection, which is a collection of works, papers, video material that Henry Hampton gathered uh, while he was making the uh, Serious Eyes on the Prize, which is mm-hmm. this 14-part documentary about the civil rights movement. And so we went there, and it was one of the most amazing experiences because I, I felt like I was really touching a piece of history mm-hmm. um, and watching uh, videos that he recorded. And it was, it was one of the most... Uh, kind of important experiences for me as a, as a student mm-hmm. to, to discover these pieces of history. Yeah. And then when I came back for my final year at Sussex, um, I did more archival research and then I continued doing archival research. And it was partly because for me, it kind of, it presented this, these materials that I could touch Mm-hmm. And I could really try to reconstruct the past through. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was quite an amazing, quite an amazing moment and quite yeah. an amazing opportunity to be able to do that. But also to have our professors that recognise the importance of archives and really encouraged us to go and get our hands dirty. Mm-hmm. And even if you didn't find anything, they would still come up with, with things to make you understand what you did find. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was how I got involved with archival research. And how does that play into your current role as an academic? Um, so right now, I, um, as you said in your introduction, I'm the course leader for the MA in Media and Digital Communications. And as part of that programme, I teach the methods course. Um, and even though we cover a lot of different methods um, to try to introduce students to, to the ways in which they can approach studying various types of media, um, I, archival research has still been really a really important part of my work, not only in my research, uh, which I can talk about later on, but also um, in encouraging students to just try it, just to mm. see what it's like. And I actually had uh, one of uh, one of my students who uh, has allowed me to use a name and share uh, today about her work. 
um, Jill, Jill Heller, she ended up um, doing really fantastic work with the Feminist Library in London. Yeah. And it started out as volunteering, but it progressed into actually looking at their documents and trying to reconstruct the history of the archive and the kind of work they do. And, and it's quite, and it became, I think even for her, it became quite an important experience because you see how something has developed, you see how something has progressed, and you get to touch materials which I really cannot over, <laughs> overemphasize how amazing that is to touch a piece of history and see how important it is and place it in context. At the University of Minnesota, I taught a module on visual culture. Uh, and as part of that, we got um, really involved with the library zine collection. So zines are handmade magazines, basically. And they're usually really political <clears throat> on a variety of topics. They're handmade. And the library had this massive collection. And so I got my students involved in it. I took them to the collection. Uh, we read all these zines. Um, they ended up even learning how to uh, how to record them, how to um, create the metadata that goes into the library catalog so that other researchers could access them. And then they made their own zines that were based on these archival zines that they that they had a chance to look at. Mm. So I think as a lecturer, it's, it, for me, it's quite important to bring that into the way I teach and to get students interested. Yeah. And... Um, even with everything that students end up doing, you end up creating your own archive of materials. So one way or another, you're partaking in the making of archives. I think you've touched on something quite interesting there, which is you talking about the digitisation of zines and that sort of thing. Yeah. Because I think when a lot of people think about archives, they think about an old stuffy room full of like old <laughs> dusty tones and that sort of thing. But that's not really the case, right? Um, it is. Sometimes it is. And from personal experience... It is. <laughs> uh, oftentimes, you would go to um, you would go to an archive, and you would be given a box full of papers, and yeah. everything is falling apart. Uh, by the time you've put everything back into the box, there's tiny shreds of paper all over, <laughs> and you feel really embarrassed, even though you were being very, very careful with them. Um, but now there is more and more digitization, which, uh, from one point of view, is absolutely fantastic. Mm. Uh, for one of my research projects, I uh, used the uh, archive of the American Jewish Committee. And their archivist, Charlotte Benelli, has been really instrumental in digitizing the material. And in fact, you can do so much with the digitized material that they have made available. Um, but again, going into the archive and actually touching it, it's, it, it gives you this extra understanding. And also you see the things that haven't been digitized because you can't necessarily digitize everything. So what gets left out can be just as important as what actually gets digitized. So yes, archives can be very stuffy. There's a lot of issues, like you can't bring a pen, you can only use a pencil, um, things like that. You can't bring any food or drinks or anything. Um, but digital archives can be, um, can be really helpful in getting people involved with history. Mm -hmm. And not just history, because they can be about any topic, really. Um, I think one of the one of the contemporary issues with digital archives is actually what uh, Jill ends up covering in her master's dissertation, 
which is, well, why do some archives have to go digital? Mm. And in the case of the feminist library that she found, it's because of rent. Rent for physical space gets to be quite, quite a lot, especially mm. if you're in London. And so the push to digitize is actually not necessarily um, a reflection of wanting to digitize, but a necessity, because if you don't, then there's nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be an issue as well. Um, I think in general, digital archives can be fantastic, mm-hmm. but at the same time, we really need to think about, well, why has this become digital? Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I think also we tend to think that just because it's digital, it doesn't have a massive footprint. Mm-hmm. But it does, because it requires massive amounts of energy to host it somewhere. And again, that is not necessarily something that we talk about. Mm. Do you feel like digitisation has a democratising effect, making it more accessible for people? Oh, that's a great question. I think to a degree it does. Um, To a degree. Mm. Uh, One of of my current projects um, is on the history of women working in communication research in the 19... really in the first half of the 20th century. Um, and I'm working with that with other, uh, on that with other people. Um, and as part of the project, we're going to publish uh, a reader with uh, primary sources. But we are also going to create a digital archive that is going to have much more information, things that we couldn't possibly include in a published volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that way, the project is really about democratising knowledge. It's really about trying to bring in these... Uh, conveniently erased women mm-hmm. um, and putting them in the spotlight and really showing what kind of work they do so that people can access the primary first-hand materials and really see for themselves and then use them mm-hmm. in various academic works. Um, so it could be incredibly democratising. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we always have to understand archives as political. Mm-hmm. Um, because at some point someone decides what is worth preserving and how we're going to preserve it. Mm-hmm. And that has a lot to do with who we think is worth listening to. Mm-hmm. And historically, that really has been white men. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we really lack the material that maybe we wish we had, partly because it wasn't considered worth preserving. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, of those, one of those stories is uh, when uh, Zora Neale Hurston, who was um, an African-American writer um, and anthropologist, she went and recorded a ton of interviews with um, slaves, with mm-hmm. people who used to be enslaved. And this was in the 1930s, so these people were old at that point. And that is a fantastic oral archive. Yeah. But again, someone had to go out and decide, well, actually, this is worth preserving. Do you feel like there's a lot of people's stories that have just been completely lost because of that? Yeah, definitely. I think so. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think University of Sussex has a really great collection of um, people's everyday lives Mm. um, where people have sent in diaries and experiences of a day in their life. Mm. So this is where you can see a normal person's experience, but put into a larger context. Mm -hmm. But definitely there is a lot of stuff that we don't have. For instance, the the AIDS epidemic, Mm -hmm. that killed off an incredible amount of people who who had a lot of knowledge about what it was like to be gay at the time. Mm -hmm. 
And so we don't have those materials. Mm. And so archives are, are, are doing exactly that. It's showing us what was recorded, but it also actually tells us what hasn't been recorded, what is missing. And so we really need to do a lot of work to try to, to, try to maybe record more people mm. and preserve more things. Because if we don't, then we kind of fail to understand our own history. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that's the future of archives, making it more inclusive, or is it still very much dominated by white men? I'm hoping that it will be more and more inclusive. I think there's more and more collections now mm. that, that do exactly that work. Uh, there's queer archives. Um, there's a lot of... I'm particularly interested in the United States, so mm. most of the archives I know about are in the United States. Yeah. Um, but there are, there are a lot more. But it's also about who do scholars and students... are in, uh, Who are they interested in? Yeah. So rather than encouraging people to go and re-examine existing archives that people have looked in over and over and over again, maybe we need to encourage them to look at new things mm. that maybe have not been explored as much. Um, because the archive, just, be, just because it exists, doesn't mean that people have done enough work on it. Right. So we really need to encourage people to do more and more work on previously marginalised people. And is that something you do with your students, try and get them excited about archives? And... I do, I yeah. try, I really try. Sometimes successfully, sometimes <laughs> not successfully. Um, but it's, it's definitely one of those things that once people get involved in it, you realise how important it is. Mm. Um, and there is, we, we do this all the time in our own families, right? We learn about our family history. Mm. You look at pictures, you hear your parents or your grandparents or your relatives tell you stories about your family. Yeah. So you construct an idea of what your family is. Mm. Um, but what happens if someone else who is maybe on the margins of your family suddenly comes in and tells you a different story about your family? Yeah. It makes you re-examine the way you've thought about your family, mm. and so in the same way, if we um, if we only learn about our own history through um, the dominant archives, mm. then we're not really learning the whole history. We're learning mm. the dominant narrative. Yeah. But if we get the marginal narratives, the the narratives that are beyond the boundary then maybe we can problematize how we think about ourselves. And yeah. I try to encourage that in, in how I teach my students. Great. Um, are there any current archival projects that uh, aim to make archives more inclusive that you want to give a little plug to? Um, I think the project that I'm doing with Carol Stabile and Amy Marie Dawson, uh, which is going to be called The Ghost Reader, mm -hmm. uh, ghosts because the women were are kind of like ghosts who are coming back to haunt yeah. us. Um, <laughs> I think this is going to do a lot of that kind of work, um, bringing to the surface the forgotten works, the erased works, partly because uh, these were women, partly because they were, uh, they were African-American, mm -hmm. partly because they had political affiliations that people did not agree with, like being communists mm -hmm. during the communist witch hunts. Um, so that is supposed to do a lot of that democratizing work. Um, I think there are also a growing amount of queer archives, which I think will be very interesting to look at. So personally, I'm uh, very interested in this collection, which I believe is uh, hosted at uh, Tulane University in New Orleans. And it's a collection of the papers of, Han of Fanny Lou Heyman, who was a civil rights leader. Um, and I think it will be fantastic to research in that collection because you have information about the freedom farms 
which is something that she tried to organize and create uh, basically sustainability and self-sufficiency for the African-American community. And it would be really interesting to see in collections like that how they use the media. Mm-hmm. And I think this has been a very important part of, um, of how I have also approached archives because I'm interested in the way they use the media. So whether it's newspapers or any kind of visual, visual publications mm-hmm. that they've done, and just trying to look for stuff like that can be incredibly important. Mm-hmm. What you find can tell you so much. Is there a time you've ever found a source in an archive that's just completely changed your perception of what you thought you knew? Yes, I have. Um, this was part of my uh, doctoral research. Um, and I was at Columbia University um, in this stuffy old room mm. and I opened the box and I found a folder with original interview transcripts and this was when the Bureau of Applied Social Research uh, 1945 they were trying to determine whether visual propaganda actually does what they think it does can mm. it actually persuade people um, and so they did 160 interviews with men who they thought were working class and white. Um, and they showed them um, propaganda cartoons to see whether they would be persuaded. And so I opened this folder and it's the original transcripts of these interviews. And I start looking through them. And it was amazing to see how much the interview process itself was so political. Mm-hmm how the interviewers were basically constructing themselves in the way they related to the men so that when uh, their superiors saw the interview transcript, they can recognise that these interviewers were professionals. Mm -hmm. They were professional social scientists and they were claiming that professionalism in the way they interviewed the men in how they tried to, uh, to, to persuade them to confess their prejudice. And that was so important. It was one of those moments where you find something original and you're like, whoa, this is significant. This tells us that the way the social sciences have imagined themselves is basically based on human relationships, yeah. which, is, which is really significant. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Fantastic. If you could just briefly tell us a bit about the programme you teach here at Regents. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to do that. Um, so I teach on the um, I teach on the BA programme for media and communications, uh, but I also run the MA in media and digital communications, which is a great programme. We combine uh, traditional media studies with innovative practices that have emerged in the 21st century. Um, and we try to provide our students with a grounding in media and communications as an academic field, but also as a cultural landscape and a network of complex industries. Uh, we have a lot of really interesting modules that we offer. We have core modules, that are one of which I teach, that give them the methodolo- methodological and theoretical tools that they can use later on. Mm-hmm. And we also have a lot of really interesting elective modules, uh, like uh, Love in a Digital Age. Um, and we really try to encourage students to find their own interests uh, and then work with them to write interesting pieces, to write interesting dissertations, to conduct research or to do a placement if they so wish. Um, yeah, it's a great program. Great stuff. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.
Thanks for listening. And if you want to find out more about our MA Media and Digital Communications program, head over to regents.ac.uk. That's R-E-G-E-N-T-S dot A-C dot U-K. And there you can find all of the most up-to-date info. That's all for this episode. Until next time. Mm-hmm.